Welcome to the Body Positivity Podcast with Diana and Arliss. And we have an incredible guest today that I have to tell everyone I have just been looking forward to for so long. So we are so honored to have Sharon with us today. Sharon, oh, and you can you pronounce your last name for me? I should have asked before we started. Don't even stress. Sharon Podobnik Peterson. Thank you. Sharon Podobnik Peterson, ACC, is an ex- executive leadership coach with more than a decade of leadership development experience in the United States and abroad. She has successfully coached thousands of individuals and teams towards impossible goals. Sharon founded the Center for Conscious Leadership in 2017 to support organizations in creating intentional, value-aligned change. She and her team provide customized workshops as well as real-time team coaching and one-on-one coaching to help turn knowledge into action and leverage individual growth for collective transformation. In addition to her work with CCL, Sharon teaches classes on individual and societal transformation at John Hopkins University, organizes pro bono services supporting the UN's 2030 Sustainable Development Goals, and is working on her book, It's Not all your fault. Exploring the nexus of personal responsibility and social change. I bring you Sharon. We're so excited to have you. Thanks. It's good to be here. <laughs> good, to, good, to, good to be in conversation. Yay. I'm so excited to be able to speak to you, Sharon, today and to learn more about your body positivity journey uh, and really understand more about your philosophy, your book, and everything that you have that you're birthing in this process right now. So my first question for you is what part of your body has been the easiest to love? Mm. There's a part of me that says no part, right? Like every part has been a journey at some point. Um, but I think the journey that's probably been the easiest for me has been around my legs, right? With my legs, they're strong, but they also like fit into traditional, uh, beauty standards for what good legs should look like. So I think that part has been easy. Um, and I think there's a part too, where, uh, my hair has been a love hate relationship over time because my hair is very good. It does exactly what I want it to do whenever I want it to do that. So today I got like a little bit of wild curl thing going on that totally works for me and the Seattle weather. But, um, when I'm trying to conform to, quote unquote, professional beauty standards, I can do the like sleek thing and I can do the like curled just right thing. So between the two of those, I would say it's legs and hair, given what's going on. I love that. Um, And I love the way that you talk about your hair and how transformation is possible in your hair and how transitional it is. And I think that that's a really unique perspective because I think that for most of the guests that we have on, um, the thing that they say they love the most is something is that is unchanging in their body. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's both, um, it's both a way to be expressive and a way to like fit in whenever I have to. Right. So like if I want to show up in a place where I just belong and I know I'm going to be accepted no matter what, like in this conversation, right. In this conversation, I am at no point concerned that either one of you are going to be like, 
really should have done your hair differently today, Sharon. Like, it's just, it's not looking good. I'm not worried about that. And so I can show up with my hair looking however I want it to look. And it can have that like wild woman thing going on and it's going to be okay. But in places where I'm like, "Mm, I'm more worried or I'm self-conscious here, or I'm feeling insecure, I can do what I need to do to the hair to help me feel like I'm going to fit in in places where I'm, you know, kind of a little worried about that thing. Yeah, I can relate to your hair being something that you kind of play with or or make look different in different ways and appreciating that about uh, about myself, too. And I think that it's it's such an interesting thing to recognize that 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 part of your hair is kind of resilient. You know what I mean? It's like it can change and, and be all these different things based on your desire in that moment. I think that's really special. Yeah. And it's funny too, because I, for a long time, felt a lot of identity around my hair and I felt very connected to it. Um, and was very worried that it wasn't going to look right at any given time. But in 2008, I shaved my head and all of that went away very, very quickly because there was no longer any canvas that I needed to make perfect at any given time. And so I got to experience what it was like to, I mean, talking about like societal standards, right? At that point, I was traveling around the world and I was like pulled out of women's restroom lines in different parts of the world or like being wanted to take photos with in other parts of the world because it totally depended like how people saw me without hair totally changed based on the country and culture that I was in, which was a very wild experience and kind of solidified for me that like, man, this shit's important. And when I say important, I mean like societally ingrained importance in us with like that it's supposed to be part of who you are. It tells us who you are. It tells us a lot about you, which I found to be pretty incredible. So I know that we normally ask a very specific follow-up question to this, but I, I have another question for you. So, and I know that you're going to roll with this because of who you are. Um, I see that you put your pronouns into your zoom, um, name block and it's a conversation that Diana and I have had together on the podcast and just in friendship talks. Um, why is that important to you? Why do you make that choice? Yeah. Thanks for asking. And I think one of the things that I do love about it is that because I have my pronouns listed on my Zoom name, I get asked that question a lot. And I love that it is creating that conversation in multiple places where it otherwise might not be happening. So there's a lot of different reasons that a lot of people will do it. I can share mine. So my um, appearance my gender, the way that I express myself, um, is the same as my biological sex, right? So I look for most days, um, like a woman and I appear as a woman and I consider myself a woman. And so for me, the pronouns that I have and that I go by match what people expect to call me. I know for a lot of people that that is not true, that that is not the case, that people would like to go by pronouns that aren't either, the ones that we assume them to be or whatever. And for folks who want to then use their pronouns and make their pronouns explicit, uh, it can be very awkward 
unless we've normalized it being the same way for lots of different folks, right? So the reason that I put my pronouns out there is to normalize that for other people who would like to, so that they're not standing out in the crowd if they would like us to use their pronouns or to know their pronouns. I am trying to do my part to increase that as being in part of the conversation um, to make it a thing that we talk about. And I mean, I think it's working because we're having that conversation right now. And so by just me choosing to do that, we're here talking about it right now. Your listeners, everybody who's watching with us on Facebook right now uh, is hopefully talking about it, thinking about it, and hopefully, you know, we'll consider adopting a similar practice so that we can normalize it for everyone. Thank you for asking that. I appreciate it. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I love that you share that perspective, Sharon, because for me, it's it's sort of the same where I I do identify with the pronouns that someone may expect of me. Uh, and I think that it's important to share mine for the reason that really we don't know. Really, we don't know. Uh, and the more that it becomes a normalized practice and the more that we we are standing in that space, I also imagine that there's a degree to which it alleviates the uncomfortable conversation for people who've had to have that uncomfortable conversation for way too long. Um, and yeah, I, I love that. Um, I love that we're having this conversation right now, though. I do, Thanks. too. Yeah. Yeah. Glad to. And I think the other thing that's true about it is that I would rather have people ask me. Right. Because what I don't want to see happen is somebody who is not that this is a bad thing, but folks who are trying to get people to use pronouns that don't look to be the obvious ones or whatever the case may be. I don't want that additional stress for those folks. Right. Like I would rather have people who are uncomfortable with this or very unfamiliar with this to ask me because I don't I don't carry the same weight. It's not going to be as heavy for me to explain it to my family or my friends, as it might be for somebody who like, this is a really heavy topic and it hurts and I'm tired of explaining myself. I, Sharon, I would rather explain it to a thousand people to take that stress away from somebody who this might, God, I don't want to answer this again, right? Like, I don't want to have to go through that. And I don't know if this would be considered a full on aggression or a microaggression to keep having to ask that, but like, that is a trauma that we don't need to continue perpetuating. And so if we can normalize it by having it in ours and explaining it to people who might be more comfortable asking me than somebody who is a stranger or they're not so close with, I would rather take that on any chance that I get. And, and what I hear is it's the, it's the release of assumption from society. So the act of, of wanting to release that assumptive part um, and inviting other people to release that assumptive part and not just in pronouns, but in how we label people generally, like in any way. Um, you know, we don't want to look at somebody and, and put any kind of label on them that is that they don't subscribe to. Um, so I, I love that. I'm so glad that we had that as part of our conversation today. Thank you, Sharon, for being one of those people that is willing to um, to have that conversation, even when it's something that most people wouldn't guess would be would be something that I don't know, would be of interest because you do subscribe to the pronouns that you physically 
um, present as. So um, I just think that's beautiful. Like you're such a great ally. And um, so many of my friends um, are have transitioned or are in transition or have changed their pronouns throughout their lifetime. And so I just I think it's so amazing every time I see somebody with pronouns in their in their name box. Yeah, I think life is hard enough (laughs) that if anything, if there's anything that we could do to make it easier for folks, right? I think that always helps. And I like what you said too about the assumptions because there's so many assumptions, right? That we make just by looking at someone all the damn time. We make assumptions all day long. And, you know, hopefully this is just one of the ways that that stops moving forward, right? And I would love to see that be true. Yeah, absolutely. So the next question we have for you is what is an area of your body that has been challenging to love? There's like the part of your body that is physically on your body, right? The thing you can touch. And then there's the intangible part of your body uh, that is also difficult to love. And for me, those two are like inextricably linked um, because I carry my weight in my stomach, right? And BMI, body weight, the intangible stuff, it, you know, it's, it's really hard even right now, right? Like it's, it's hard for me to talk about it, even though it's something that I've practiced a long time and I've been coming to terms with for a long time. And so there's like this physical manifestation of the fat that we can see, right? And there's two different kinds of fats. There's like subcutaneous fat, which is the stuff that you can poke and pinch and prod and the stuff that you can see like on the outside of my body when I'm wearing a bikini, which translates into a lot of the BMI stuff. Actually, no, it doesn't. Sorry, I totally mis- mislabeled that, missaid that. It does not relate to the BMI stuff, although we make the assumption that it does. My BMI has been quote unquote too high my entire life. Regardless of how much fat it looks like I have on my body, my BMI has always been high. I was a tri-varsity athlete in high school. I was running my butt off every single day. I was a powerhouse. And my BMI always put me in the like, overweight to obese range. And so between those two things, I have a hard time coming to terms with it because every doctor, I think that is true. I'm making sure that I'm not exaggerating. I am almost certain that every doctor I've ever gone to from my PCP to my gynecologist, to my therapist has asked me about weight and BMI. And so it feels like a thing I cannot remove from my body itself, even though it is not actually my body. Right. And then you have the manifestation of the weight that you carry, wherever you carry it. I carry mine in my stomach and on my hips. The hips part doesn't bother me because it's kind of accepted culturally right now to have hips. I'm not sad about that part because it's accepted right now, but it is not accepted to have weight in your stomach. And so I am having a really hard time, especially lately dealing with that and dealing with that part of things. Um, especially because it's been an ongoing process, right? So I got married in 2017 and lost a metric fuck ton of weight in order to get married because I thought I had to. And from then and not dieting and not like heavily restricting things in the weight, I'm sorry, in the months after that, it's just been like steady weight gain, steady weight gain, steady weight gain, because I refuse to diet ever again. And so it 
feels like I come to terms with it and then it gets bigger <laughs> and then I come to terms with it and then it gets a little bigger and it's really hard to continue coming to terms with the thing that you feel like you've come to terms with. And then you go to the doctor and they talk about BMI, right? So like, it feels like I can never get away from this thing, no matter how much I feel like I've come to peace with this thing. It just keeps coming back to haunt me in different ways. Yeah. I love that you're talking about BMI because to me, it's like, it should be like BS. Just, it's like, just BS. It's like not real. So as somebody who is very muscular, just naturally, um, even when I was severely anorexic in um, my senior year of high school and in college, I, the lowest I got was 180 pounds. And I looked like super thin. Like you could see my skin, like collarbones, you could see my ribs, like you could see it all. Right. And I was still supposed to be 170 pounds in order to be in a normal weight, um, for my body size. And so I've never fit into BMI at all ever in my life. Um, and, and now that I've gone through that now, I don't recommend anybody go through that, but because I went through that, I now know that even when I got down to like skeletally thin, I still wasn't within that BMI range. So I I think it's really important that you bring that up. And I will say that for myself, um, for like the last 10 years, whenever I go see a new doctor, I say right out, you know, like if we're going to have a discussion about my weight, I'm not interested in having you as a doctor because I, I, you know, I'm physically active almost every day. I have a very restricted diet because of the health concerns that I've had in my past. Um, at this point, like my body is just doing what it's doing, you know, and, and I'm at the weight that I'm at and, and like, there really isn't much I can physically do to change that unless I really want to push myself beside behind, like beyond what is healthy for me. Um, and so I say that right off. And I've had doctors like kind of scoff it. And I'm like, okay, well, thank you. And I leave because when I feel like when I go see a doctor, it's just as much an interview for them as it is about them accepting me as a patient. So um, thank you so much for bringing that up. It's so important. And I'm sure that Diana has lots to comment on this too. Yeah. You know, one of the things that comes up for me is, uh, is a feeling of always being measured by numbers as a kid. So whether it was my grades or my weight, there there was there was judgment behind every number that I was, where I was supposed to be at the extreme end of one things, but to try to be as normal as possible in other things, based on some random metric that somebody created. It's really, it's really interesting because um, a lot of, a lot of my um, doctor checkups when I was little, like my mom would also handle because she was a pediatrician. And so there were ways in which even for me, that message was layered with like doctors, parents and judgment behind numbers. And yeah, like, I think that, I think that maybe people don't really think about how traumatic that could be to constantly have to talk about your weight, to constantly have to defend yourself um, or to have other people try to measure you or your health by a number. Like, like it just has never, ever felt good for me. 
but I can definitely understand what you mean, Sharon, with that idea of like, okay, I've loved it. It just grew bigger. I have a new level of having to love it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, um, and it being challenging to love your body and to love yourself as you grow in different ways that maybe are not always exactly what, um, you know, like what other people think is good for you. There's like an obsession with numbers, right? We have to quantify everything. And it just feels like in the process of quantifying every damn thing, you're removing so much humanity from it, right? Like there's, how often do our doctors actually ask about our qualitative lifestyle, right? Like when we're asked about how much we're sleeping, we're asked about how many hours we're sleeping, not about the quality of the sleep. We're asked about like how many minutes of exercise we're getting, not whether or not we enjoy the exercise we're doing. And it really reminds me of like, honestly, white supremacist, patriarchal control of every fucking thing that we do, having to measure it, having to account for it, having to justify it and explain it and the levels of control that we have to exert over our bodies, right? And at one point, there was this huge aha that happened when I was thinking about self-control, but also at the same time, I was doing professional development around the differences between being assertive and being aggressive, right? And this aha clicked that there's a difference between like assertive levels of self-control and aggressive levels of self-control. And when we're playing with aggressive levels of self-control, we're doing it in ways that aren't good for us. They're not good for us, but we're controlling different aspects, whether it's our intake or how we feel about ourselves or whatever the thing is, we're being truly aggressive and like going against our own happiness and health and well-being and right to live the way that we want to live in an effort to control. And when we're trying to control to that extent, we're not doing so for us, right? We're doing so to fit into the mold, to fit into the BS beauty standards, to fit into the BS BMI things that exist, but it's not for us, right? Like it is not for my own health, happiness, or well-being in that way whatsoever. And I warned y'all ahead of time that I was going to ask about this. So I'm popping it in right now because I feel like so much of this comes back to like the diet industry and what we're told to do and the kinds of books that we read and messaging that we get that tells us who we have to be, which I know y'all have talked about at length on here. So I'm not going to get too much into those nitty gritties, but I am curious how y'all see the self-help world as it interacts with weight, body, positivity, body positivity, all of that stuff. So I'll take a first stab at this. Um, Self-help world. You know, I think that, uh, I think that most of it has good intentions. Okay. I think that most of it has good intentions, but um, knowing the difference between intent and impact is very important. And the impact that it has is, I think, has been historically pretty negative. Um, I think that there's a lot of judgment around in that world. I think that there's a lot of um, classification and good and bad and um, a lot of 
you know, putting people into boxes and maybe you're outside the box and that's why you need the help and all this sort of thing. And so I do think that I see a shift happening in the last five years where self-help is more inclusive. It's gentler. It's, um, it's more positive in the sense of accepting of where people are in that moment. And I also think it's more realistic. So I think that there has been a ton of toxic positivity um, in the self-help world for, for, you know, most of its existence. And that that is, is there's some of that being released. And Diana and I work very hard to not have that be part of what we're doing. You know, we want to talk about the hard stuff. We want to talk about the challenges. The challenges are real. The hard things are real. We all have hard days. We all have days where we look at ourselves in the mirror and we're like, uh, even somebody like me that's been like meditating for 15 years or something and practicing self-love for at least that long in some degree. Um, yeah, I think that there that self-help has kind of shied away from that, but they're coming out of that. And I'm really liking the change that I see um, around that. So that's my opinion. What do you have to say, Diana? Yeah. Um, kind of working off of what Arliss was sharing. I think there are levels of awareness that happen in self-help. And so based on the level of awareness that we're at, like if you imagine it as a, as a ladder, for example, sometimes reaching all the way to the very top, to the pinnacle, it isn't possible for people who are all the way deep down in the dumps. And so sometimes I think that there's a place for these different things that are available to us in self-help, different kind of levels of awareness that we can move through. And sometimes that person who, um, who is in a really challenging spot, maybe they respond better to that toxic positivity or, you know, like they need something that's a little more firm or whatever. So I think that there's like still place for everything, but that at the same time, I'm really glad that there's become more of this evolution toward the more gentle side as more people become aware of it. So I think that uh, self-help to me kind of reflects the level of awareness of the people of the time as well. And then there are some folks where, you know, you kind of go back and they always just seem like classics, but um, even there, there's still space for those to be updated in awareness. Um, you know, like for example, like Napoleon Hill did like decades of research on some of the most successful people in the world, but he shared his stories from a 19, you know, early 1900s point of view. And so some of the ways that he conveyed messages is no longer appropriate or it's no longer relevant, but that doesn't change like the crux of the message. And so I think that in self-help, there are all these people who share at the level of awareness that they are the message that they're receiving. And then, and as long as I think you're pulling somebody else up, there is space and place for you. But I think that it is still also about that continual evolution. If you're going to stay stuck in that place that, you know, just helps only certain people and you yourself are not moving up. I think that that is challenging. And I, I think that that's challenging as well as, um, as coaching becomes more and more prevalent. There are a lot of people who, don't walk the walk. Let's put it that way, right? They, who don't walk the walk. And I think that it's really easy sometimes to be positive in the, in the, in the easy times. And it's something completely different to be able to find growth and opportunity in when things are challenging. And I think that 
that higher level of awareness is showing transparency in both and that the toxic positivity is this covering or the shame behind what's negative. And as more people are healing theirs and embodying the healing of that, our collective awareness of what's possible uh, in self-help grows. So I think it's it's an interesting time. Um, and I, I'm really grateful for, for where we are in this self-help world, because I think it is just a continual evolution of, of all of our collective awareness. And that's interesting too, right? Because if I think about my own history with dieting. I first read the books that shamed me into dieting more, right? It's what I was looking for. It's what I thought I needed to get my willpower where I needed it and wanted it to be. And there's a demand, quite honestly, right? Like because we, not we all, but because so many of us are stuck in our own shame cycles about our own bodies, we then go looking for answers and people who are going to agree with us that our bodies are shameful and shame us into doing it. Right. And shame is fucking powerful. It is awful. Everything about it is awful and it is powerful. And so like, I'm hearing you talk about the evolution of collective consciousness, right. And of our own awareness. And it's so fascinating to think about I mean, we've seen the ad industry change. We've seen marketing industries change because there's a demand for something different. And honestly, this is something that I'm truly excited to see is how self-help will change as our collective consciousness grows around different ways of either creating change or acceptance or common humanity or whatever the thing is, um, because we're seeing shame be so problematic because we're having conversations where we can be open and vulnerable and talk about these things and realize that we're not alone, which is going to mean that we can find different conversations, right? So I'm going to do a little plug right here from the book because um, the book that I'm writing is called It's Not All Your Fault. And it talks about these evolutions where when we grow up with shame and we're socialized with shame, we look for shame and we find it in self-help. And only after going through enough of this and realizing that these messages are not our own, they're coming from someone else, only after realizing that none of this diet shit works and it's not healthy and it's not in our own best interest, can we finally do something, right? And so it means that we can create the awareness that you were talking about, Diana. It means that we can have these conversations collectively, like the three of us are doing and sharing with the audiences because people are talking about it now, right? Like people are wanting to see something different. And so when I think about... Um, body positivity coming into the mainstream, right? Like it is finally a thing that feels mainstream enough that it's not a bad word in some ways, right? Like to own your fat and say, I have fat, that it's becoming more normalized, right? And so I'm curious now, like what, what are you hoping happens next? Like if we could pull the diet rug out from everybody and pull the body shame rug out from everybody and back it up a couple notches and like fix it at the source, what would that thing be? Like how, how would you like to see the whole thing be transformed? What do you think it would take? I'll answer. Um, what comes to me immediately as a word is forgiveness. So forgiveness of self, forgiveness of our past versions that we're less aware 
forgiveness of the people around us who still hold that lack of awareness, because I think that that trans like that really, as long as the whole diet and like health industry is driven by shame, that like that that is a very powerful emotion. And that one of the few things that can heal and move us past that is love and forgiveness. So I think there's a whole lot of love and forgiveness that needs to happen. And I think that, um, I think that that's what I see as, as part of it, but I think that that's, there's even levels that we have to kind of forgive ourselves for the ways that we've fallen into diet industry traps in the past. You know, there's a whole lot of forgiveness of past levels of awareness that we have to do so that we can um, forgive and heal the ones that are in our presence still. Yeah. And I think the next step in that process is acceptance, you know, acceptance of ourselves, where we are, um, acceptance of who we've been in the past, acceptance of the people around us and the people that look totally different than us. Um, and, and just a holistic acceptance. Uh, I think that, I think that through forgiveness and acceptance, a lot of things can shift. You know, I, when I dream about a world that I want to live in someday, it's a, it's a world where people get up in the morning and they look themselves in the eyes and they say, I love you. Everybody, everybody on the planet gets up in the morning, looks themselves in the eyes in a mirror or in the reflection in water or whatever it is and says, I love you. I accept you today just as you are right now. Um, and I imagine what that world could be and what, and, and what the shift would happen around self-help would be, you know, because it's interesting, um, you know, what would that even look like at that point? And, and, and for me, what that looks like is, um, letting people know, Hey, it's okay. You might have days where you can't say, I love you. You might have days where you can't look at yourself in the eyes. And that's okay too. And you can, and being accepting and forgiving of that as well. Can I ask a follow-up question to that? So let's say that that world exists, right? The world comes into existence. It is beautiful. What would that do to the entire industrial complex, right? Like what would that do? What would that, I guess my question is like, what, what do you think the demands would be then on medicine, on health? on self-help, on literally everything. Yeah, I think the demands would be for a sense of wellness, a sense of comfort in the body, like, and not comfort from eating chocolate cake. I mean, we can only eat chocolate cake and, and, and that can be healthy for us. You know, like my chocolate cake is sugar-free and grain-free because that's what's healthy for me. And Diana's chocolate cake looks different than mine. But, um, you know, finding that sense of wellness, finding that sense of wellness mentally and physically, figuring out what really helps them be in their body and health um, instead of determining what we're going to do or put in our body based on how we look. I just don't think that it would even matter how we look at that point. I think that it would all come down to health and wellness. I think there's some ways that, um, that we're evolving in that right now. I think that 
COVID and the burnout that we're seeing, this this crisis that we're going through is causing a health crisis in a way, a wellness crisis that people where people are paying more attention to mental health, people are paying more attention to overwork and the impact that it can have on your body. People are paying more attention to well-being. So I think we are living in that world where things are getting better. And if we can see ourselves here in this place as that this uncomfortable thing that we're going through is part of this evolution of awareness, I think it makes it a little more palatable. Because, you know, just like you were sharing earlier, Sharon, look at how much body positivity has changed in the last few years, how much more accepted it is. And this this happens with more more awareness, more sharing, more honesty that, you know, we get to be a part of in sharing this podcast episode today. I love this. I knew, I knew having you on as a guest would be epic and it's totally epic. Um, I love your insightful questions for us and I just love your mind and, and I love, um, how much time and effort you've put into cultivating awareness within yourself, Sharon, like it's very evident that this is passion for you, um, and that you care so, so deeply. So I do have to get a couple of golden nuggets out of you though. So um, what is one of your favorite self-care or self-love practices? Uh, I've got two that I want to share because I think they're both so good. So I think this comes in line with the um, body positivity is becoming more of a mainstream thing. We have more outlets, we have more resources, which is freaking awesome. Um, I want to say it was maybe a year and a half ago that I went through everything in all of my feeds and deleted anything that was remotely diet centric, right? And filled it with all of my friends' recommendations for holistic, wellness first, body positivity, body neutrality even, right? Like removing stigma, but removing... I almost said the weight from it too, right? Like the removing any attachment we have to the aesthetics of body, right? Anything that is in that, in that vein. And then the second thing is fucking crying because crying is cathartic as shit. And sometimes all it takes is turning on a shower and like curling up in a fetal position in the shower and letting the rain pour over you and just sobbing. And I think both of those things have our, have their places in our like wellness, uh, practices. I think one is a, it keeps me going all the time, right? Cause I no longer have shitty things influencing how I feel about myself. But then the other one is just like such a release because this stuff gets pent up and I appreciate that there's a way to just let it go. Y'all ever do that, or am I the only one? Please tell me I'm not the only one. So I'm not an in the shower crier. I'm in the closet crier. So the closet is my happy place. I actually have created a nook that's not actually a closet, but it's like enclosed, like underneath a sloping part of a ceiling on the top um, floor of my house where that's when I feel that's where I go. Like I like quiet, dark spaces as my, as my cathartic place. How about you, Diana? I like to cry in bed with covers overhead. I just want to like be in bed and like, yeah, that's, that's my spot. 
<laughs> I have this black scarf that I would like wrap around my eyes if I'm going to cry during the day and it's not shower time. And so I would get in bed and like, there's a black scarf that just sits next to my bed and I wrap it around like the top half of my face so that I can just cry and it doesn't get any mascara on the pillowcases, but it darkens it. And I feel like my world is very small because that feels good. And I play whatever song I need to play to induce the feelings, to make me feel the way I need to feel to just let it go. So both of those resonate with me very deeply. Yeah. And I know that we're getting close on time. Um, and I wanted to ask you, Sharon, what's a closing thought that you want to leave with our listeners? Like, what do you want? What do you want our listeners to take away today? I'm noticing that this is a pattern that anytime you ask me for one thing, I have to have two. I, I don't know what it is, but there's two. Uh, one is that I want y'all to go and get my book when it comes out. It is coming out this summer. It's called It's Not All Your Fault. It'll be on Amazon. It'll be on Audible. It'll be at Barnes and Nobles, all your favorite retailers. Uh, so check it out because, and this is related, the one thing I want all of us to do is to find friends who are tearing apart these messages and do it together, right? Find every message that uh, is making us feel bad about who we are, how we are in this world and evaluate it, figure out where it's coming from and who benefits from us thinking that thing, feeling that way, whatever that thing is, uh, because we need to tear it down. We need to tear all of this shit down because it's the messaging that's making us feel this way. And the more we can create awareness around it and analyze the messages, who benefits from us having them and what impact it has on us, we're better equipped to take action and do something about it. So those are my things. Thanks for asking. Yeah. So exciting. When you release your book, send us the deets and we'll um, help promote it for you. I will. Thank you. And we'll see you all next week.